Heavenly Father, it is so good to come to your house and to gather and to worship you. And we know that truly this is what we were made for. We were made for you, for worshiping you and for worshiping together as the body of Christ. And we know that worship isn't just about what happens here on Sunday morning. We want worship to become our way of life that everything about our lives is glorifying to you, honoring to you. And today as we go into prayer, we know that we want to pray unceasingly. We want a life of prayer, a life of communion, a life of being lifted up into your presence, a life of knowing that you are with us. So be with us now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Be with every man and woman, every child gathered in their classrooms in the back. Be with each and every one of us so that we could be touched, we could be moved, we could actually be changed by encountering you, the risen, reigning, and returning Lord of all creation, Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray, and all God's people are gonna say, amen. amen. Hallelujah and amen. Let me jump right into the scripture reading for us this morning. We're gonna be jumping back into, of course, Ephesians. We've been going through Ephesians. We're at the end of chapter three now. Let me pull up here the prayer that Paul is lifting up to the church in Ephesus and for all of us. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, somebody say glorious riches, all right, you're still with me. Out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, say rooted and established in love. You're learning the points of the sermon, whether you know it or not right now in the scripture reading may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, say wide, high. and long, say long, high. and high, say high. high, and deep, say deep. deep. You guys are so good today. My goodness, you are just right with me, is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Scratch your head on that one. To know what surpasses knowledge, what is that all about? Let's find out. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Somebody say immeasurably more. Who? That's, that's all right. Let's go there. To him be, oh wait, I missed that last part. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we are coming to the end of the first part of Ephesians. It is nicely broken down to us into six chapters. The first three is a bit of an introduction, and then the second three are a bit of working it out. And we know from last week that Paul is kind of rounding out his declaration of his identity 
his place of belonging and his purpose. We got into that passage last week, the first half of chapter three, that the uh, scholars, the literature will t- call it a, uh, what do they call it again? A, a digression, right? So they call it a digression because he kind of says, for this reason, he has this thought, and then he picks it up with this prayer that we just read this morning. But we learned that that isn't just like a digression, although in literary terms, that what it would be. This is his opportunity before he moves into some new material, before he says this prayer for us, remember this was his opportunity to make a declaration. And it was that declaration of his purpose. And so we just summarize the first three chapters to say what Paul has established for us is his identity, his belonging and his purpose. His identity is in his union with Jesus Christ. His place of belonging is being a part of the body of Christ. He is not alone drifting out in the world. He has brothers and sisters. He's being knit, built together as a temple, the very body of Christ. And he has declared his purpose in serving in the mission of sharing the gospel to all the world and to proclaim the message that God is bringing all people together as one in Christ Jesus. And so, of course, this is our opportunity and our invitation to make this our identity. And I wanna encourage you to continue to be living into and building into your identity, being established, being rooted in your union with Jesus Christ. You have all that you need, every spiritual blessing he's about, as we got into in that first chapter, in your union with Jesus Christ. You have your place of belonging in the body of Christ. You, like Paul, are not alone. You have a place to land, a place to be, brothers and sisters to do life together with when the church is functioning as it should. You have a mission. You have a purpose in being a part of what God is doing through his church, through your life, out and into the world. So that is what he has established. And what he has really done here is he is... uh, inviting us to kind of reframe our life. Whenever we look at that transition, let me actually go back to, because I have all the scriptures here. So let me um, pull back here. He, he ended last week, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Now remember, when Paul is writing us, he states that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ which is a powerful juxtaposition, right? Because he is quite literally a prisoner of Rome. That was not a metaphor for him. He was a prisoner in Rome in chains. But the way he reframes, the way he imagines and sees and understands his life is that he is actually a prisoner for Jesus Christ, which is actually a blessing to be bound with Jesus. But then he goes on, and I love that. And I just wanna pick up here. He says, with freedom and confidence, he can approach God now. And that is the invitation for all of us. With freedom and confidence, we can approach God. Call it seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, right? (laughs) Call it seeing the glass half full. He is just living into how he sees the world in an entirely new paradigm, an entire new reality. They may lock me up, but I have 
freedom to approach God. They may be trying to undermine my confidence, but I have confidence to come close to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. That is the invitation for us. No matter what your situation or circumstance in life, you have freedom and confidence to approach God. If things are going poorly, if things are going rough, if you're going through a difficult season, you still have the freedom, the invitation, the confidence to approach God. You can approach God when things are going hard at work. You can approach God when you're struggling with your studies. You can approach God whenever relationships are difficult. You can approach God whenever you are having your own health or financial or whatever crisis. You have the freedom to approach God and the invitation is to do just that. Paul is living into the fulfillment of the blessing that had been spoken over the people of God for generation after generation. We'll often wrap up our services here, as a lot of churches do, by remembering the priestly blessing. It was a beautiful blessing that the priests would speak out over the people of God. And they would say, the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. And what Paul has established for us in these first three chapters is he said, guess what? The Lord has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. We are living into the time when we have the blessings fulfilled, amen? Live into those blessings. The Lord keep you. The Lord Jesus has promised to be with us forever and always. I will never leave you and forsake you. He knows that even in prison, he's living into the fulfillment of the promise. The Lord turn his face toward you, be gracious to you. The Lord um, uh, smile upon you. It's different translations and give you his peace. How did Paul start this? Grace and peace to you. The Grace, oh, excuse me, the grace and the peace that they were praying for, that they're asking for in that blessing, he is living into. And we are living into. We are living into that grace and that peace that we now have in Jesus Christ. And so living into the blessing now, fulfilled for us through Jesus Christ, he now makes a transition. And so we jump into the new material now. How does he begin? For this reason then, knowing all of this has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled through Jesus Christ, I kneel, I kneel before the Father. Now, whenever Paul says that he is kneeling before the Father, he's, he's actually, again, challenging the people to think of their lives and to think of worship and to think about approaching God in a new way as a good and faithful Jew who grew up in that tradition, who has now seen Jesus as the fulfillment of all the promises and God's plan of redemption. He is bringing the people back. He is bringing some of them back who have understood the context of prayer and worship in the old paradigm. The people of God, whenever they gathered for prayer, uh, they would actually gather and they would stand. The most common posture of prayer would be to stand, to stand in honor, to stand and lift prayers, to stand and praise him, to stand and worship him. It would have been the most common posture to pray would be standing before God. But there was a bit of an exception. Whenever they came to the temple, when they came to the temple, when they came to that holy of holies, when they are approaching then the presence of God, they would humble themselves and they would kneel. They would kneel before God. And what Paul has established for us, remember, is that he has said, now, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Now you are the place where heaven and earth collide in you, in your being. This is where the space between heaven and earth gets thin and you encounter God and he is dwelling in you by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so it only makes sense now that he says, you got to kneel. Oh, my friends, we can put it this way. If you wanna make it a little bit more preachy, remembery, I hope here. If you want to get high, you got to get low. Don't misquote me on that. That could be very dangerous putting that out there. If you want to be lifted high to the presence of God, the invitation is to get low and to humble yourself. If you want to be lifted up with God, humble yourself, lower yourself, kneel before the Father. Kneel before him and encounter his presence. The beautiful invitation, the, the, the redirecting, the restructuring of our lives as living temples, the place where heaven and earth collide, and we humble ourselves and graciously thank God for meeting us in our inner being. And that inner being sets up the context for a lot of what Paul is about to pray for us. He then says, and we have to throw this out too, he then makes this affirmation that God the Father is making us one. Remember, he has already established that the purpose, the mystery revealed has been to make us a new humanity and to make us one. And he simply gives this affirmation again that in the context of the ancient world, uh, Paul's culture, and now is sharing the gospel with uh, the church here in Ephesus, that the two, what was previously separated, the people of God and the rest of the world, the Jews and the Gentiles, are all now coming together as one, one family from whom all derive their name, from God the Father in heaven. What was torn apart by Adam when the sin entered the world, and we fell away from God, is now being brought back together as one in Jesus Christ. Paul can't emphasize it enough. We can't emphasize it enough. We can't beat this drum too much. The oneness, the unity that brings us together in the body of Christ. And this prayer is actually going to, in a sense, tease out what our oneness is founded upon. Chapter four, in some beautiful ways, is gonna invite us to live into our unity. But over and over and over again, we keep learning that whatever divided us in the past, whatever you thought separated you in the past, whatever you rose to most important to say, this is most important, and if you're not on the same page with me in this, then we can't be brothers, we can't be sisters, we can't be friends, we in fact have to be enemies. Jesus Christ is saying all of that now is under subservient. It is below what is most important. And that is the oneness that we have in Jesus Christ by the salvation that he has given to us by his grace. Nothing, nothing, nothing is more important, more foundational than this. And this is what our unity is built upon. And then we get into, of course, the, um, you know, this uh, kind of prayer. And, uh, there's a lot we can say about this prayer. There's many ways that you can break it down, but a lot of the translations in the NIV, they give us some pretty helpful little marks where it's just gonna kind of pause and say, I pray, I pray, and I pray. And so there's three big kind of movements to this prayer. He's gonna pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will recognize that Christ now is dwelling and living in our inner being, in our hearts. He's just gonna pray that we would know what is unknowable which is beautiful in a sense, to know how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And then he's gonna pray that we would be filled to the fullness. And oh, I'm gonna have some fun with that. You'd be filled to the fullness of God 
in their lives. And so he starts. He prays that Christ would dwell in you and dwell in your hearts. Now, let's pause and think about this for a second. Because I've made it quite a point over the past, what is it now, six or seven weeks, that the primary way that we should understand and picture our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, is that our lives are kept in Jesus Christ. More than 20 times now, Paul has used language such as, put your life in Jesus Christ. Your righteousness is in Jesus Christ. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. Your future is in Jesus Christ. It is all about putting your life into Jesus Christ. And there is a certain maturity of that. And I invited all of us, of course, to kind of make that step of a more grown-up faith where it's not just about us, but it's more about Jesus Christ. And so we see our lives as a part of the life and the work of Jesus Christ. There's something humble about that. There's something reverent about that. And there's something to the witness of Scripture that shows that's the primary way that Paul thinks about his life. And he will say that, you know, you are actually risen and with Christ in the heavenly realm, seated at the right hand of God the Father. There is this sense that Paul, again, when he kind of maybe closes his eyes and he's in prayer and he's thinking about his life, he is picturing his life being in Jesus Christ, his Savior and his Lord. But here, and we pointed out this verse the other week as well, to say there are times, though, when we can't understand Christ living in us. Let me just say this. Are we mature enough that we can handle not an either-or faith, but a both-and faith? <laughs> Amen. Good. Because it's both and. There are times that we need to understand that our lives are lifted up. We are secure. Our citizenship is in heaven. There's great peace. There's great confidence. There's great hope in that. But there are times when we want Christ to be with us when we are going through difficult seasons in life, when we're going through a rough place. There is that comfort. There is that peace. There is that simple childlike faith, right? There's that simple, beautiful childlike faith of the promise that Christ is with me, that Christ is dwelling in my heart. And so I would simply, again, encourage you to say, think about your life as being with Christ, but know that whenever you're going through those difficult seasons, you're in those rough patches when you really need Christ. How far away is Christ? He's not just in the heavenly realms. He's both and. He's still right there with you. He's still dwelling richly in your heart so that you know you are never alone. I love perhaps best the way that Christina Rossetti put it in the song we sometimes sing at Christmas. Not often, it's an old one, it's an obscure one, but that old poem turned to music, what can I give him? What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. Whenever I need that peace, that confidence, that assurance, again, I just go to that childlike simple faith. What can I give the Lord, the creator, the savior, the redeemer, the maker? What can I give him? What doesn't he have? What could he possibly want of all things that are already his? I give him my heart. And that's what he wants more than anything else. He wants us to be in communion and relationship with him. So know that you can call upon Christ and he can dwell richly in your heart. Then he moves to that next movement, to know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And he says to know, in a sense, what is unknowable. What 
Paul here is praying for, for the Ephesians, is what he is helpless to do. This is why he has transitioned to prayer. He has to move from the teaching, from the instruction, from the proclamation to the prayer that can lead to the transformation. Because he can preach, he can profess, he can talk about the love of God, the love of God shown for us in Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made, the spirit that is available to dwell in each and every one of us, the salvation that comes to us by the grace as a gift from God. He can preach, teach, talk about all that he wants till he's blue in the face, but what he is helpless to do is to make it real in you. So he has to pray. And there's a sense where he's forced to pray. <laughs> I have gotten to the end of my preaching and my teaching and my instruction, what I can tell you. And now all that I can do for you is pray for you. To pray for you from the bottom of my heart that this would all move now from information to your personal transformation. From the information about this great and glorious God and the mystery revealed and this plan of redemption and all this stuff. And he's put out a lot of big stuff, right? Now I want it to become real in your lives. We can profess our love, but it's a very different thing to experience and to be transformed by love. You know, I can profess my love to Robin and Robin can profess her love to me, but it's a very different thing for us to love one another, not just in good times, but in bad times. To love one another, not just in plenty, but in those times of want. To love each other, not just for the richer, waiting for the richer, praying for the richer, but <laughs> in the poor. When we experience and know we are secure in the love of one another, then the transformation begins to change us and work through us. The story is perhaps apocryphal, but I hope it would be true. I hope it would be true a million times over. But the story is told of the kid who was sent to vacation Bible school, VBS. If you don't know what VBS is, VBS is like free child care for families and forcing kids to go to church for a whole week. What a, what a raw deal is that for those poor kids? They get forced to church for a whole week. We get them captive and we just start throwing Bible stories at them. As the story is told, mom picks up her, her kid on the first day of vacation Bible school and says, what'd you learn? Learn that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Picks him up the second day. What did you learn? I learned that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. What'd you learn the third day? Jesus loves me. What'd you learn the fourth day? Jesus loves me. Last day of vacation Bible school. Mom thinks one more chance. Might as well ask the question, well, I changed the rhythm and routine of the week anyways. What'd you learn today at Vacation Bible School? And the young boy pauses, thinks about it for a minute and says, I love Jesus, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. To make that transition, to experience that transformation from, know, from hearing about the love of God for us through Jesus Christ to experiencing the love of God for us through Jesus Christ. And that is the prayer of every preacher. At the end of the words, at the end of the message, at the end of the service, oh, to pray that you would experience and live into the love of God and allow it to change your lives. And Paul says beautifully, and we could wax eloquently on this, oh, how wide is the love of God? You can run back and forth, zigzag your whole life, searching things out. You will never escape the breadth of his love. Oh, how long, no matter how many days we have, be they short 
or many. Oh, how long extending out forever and ever as far as the horizon and beyond. How long is that love of God for us in Jesus Christ? Oh, how high you can climb the highest mountain, but you can't climb higher than the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. You can go deep. You can be in the depths. You can hit rock bottom, the bottom of the barrel. There you'll encounter the deep, deep love of God for us in Jesus Christ. Oh, to know how wide, how long, how high, how deep is that love for us in Jesus Christ. And then he says that you would be filled with the fullness of, of God. The NIV says filled to the measure of all the fullness. I love how a lot of the other translations, they just make it more terse. To be filled with the fullness. Somebody say filled with the fullness. Yeah, all right, you're still with me. I think that's gonna be our new mission statement or new motto here at Connections, right? Connections Church, filled with the fullness. We will be really weird then. What do you mean by that? Filled with the fullness of God. But that is the invitation of the life of the Christ follower, the emptying of ourselves, the laying down of our lives, the turning over of everything that we are to him so that he may be filling us up. Oh, to be filled with the fullness of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the love of the Father overflowing from our lives. Listen, I think preachers are often guilty of setting up the Christian straw man. Let, let, let me explain that because that, that could be a little obscure. You know, when people set up a straw man, they set up a very weak argument for something so that they can knock it down. A lot of times in the church, if I reflect upon messages I've heard or things I've read, we, we like to set up a Christian straw man many times. Oh, there's many Christians that profess Jesus Christ with, with their mouth, but they don't live in him fully with all of their hearts, right? And then you're like, who wants to live like that? And then everybody can be like, oh, I don't want to live like that. I'm not a hypocrite. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite. I don't think not surrendering fully and experiencing the fullness of God is that simple or simplistic. I think the reality is a bit more like a poem that a guy named Wilbur Rees wrote. William Wilbur Rees wrote this during um, the time of the civil rights movement in the 60s. And he was a white man and he was a poet. But as he reflected upon what was happening in the culture in the time, he wrote this. He said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or to pick beats with an immigrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. See, I think that rings more true in my experience. I don't wanna be a hypocrite. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite. Nobody wants to profess something with their mouth and not believe it in their heart. But what he gets to in that is to say, but to fully surrender and to be changed and transformed by Jesus Christ, that is a deep work and that can be a difficult work. When we reflect upon our lives, how often is that case? Maybe I do just want some ecstasy. I don't want the pain of that new birth that can truly change me as a man or a woman. I don't want to completely empty myself. I just want a little bit of God, like a cup of warm milk to soothe me where I'm already at. But 
The invitation is for that deeper work of transformation, that emptying of ourselves so that we can be filled with all the fullness of God and God alone in our lives. So that maybe when deeper, difficult things happen, it is then the love of God that spills out. I saw this meme and it's terrible. It's so cheesy, but it's so memorable. It said, you know, I want to be so filled with, with the spirit of God that if a mosquito bites me, he's going to fly away singing, there's power in the blood. And I was like, oh, good grief. That's... That's actually pretty good. So, <laughs> I mean, can we be so filled to the measure, so filled with Christ in us that it is only Christ and God and his love that spills out? I always go back to, of course, the fruit of the Spirit as the measure, as kind of that, 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 that plumb line of the Christian life of where we are standing up and how things are working in our lives. If people approach us with hate, are we spilling over then with love? If discouragement is pressing upon us, can then we well up the joy of the Lord that transcends all circumstances in this world? Whenever disturbance is coming into the culture, into the world, into the community, into our lives, can the peace of God that surpasses, that transcends, that rises above all understanding take hold of our hearts? Whenever we are pushed to be impatient, can the patient love of God who loves us despite how many times we might walk away from him show us how to patiently love others whenever people treat us unkindly can we respond with kindness when people treat us badly can the goodness of God overflow whenever people are rough and raw with us can we be gentle with them Whenever all the world is lacking control, can we gain self-control in the name of God over our lives? Just always go back to those fruits of the Spirit. Go back to those qualities and characteristics of God in our lives. And when we see those things spilling over, when we see continually over and over again, it is love, it is joy, it is peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we know then that we are being filled with the fullness of the measure of God and God alone in our lives. This is why the invitation is for the Christian to lay down their life, to die unto themselves, to empty themselves so that we can be filled more and more with God in us. And that leads then to the beautiful ending to this. After this prayer for the people in Ephesus, this prayer that we are invited to pray, and let me say this about, about prayer. This isn't the one all and be all of prayer. There's actually prayers already in Ephesians. There's gonna be more prayers throughout. There's prayers in the life of Jesus. There's prayers in all the letters to the churches. There's a whole book of prayer called the Psalms. I mean, there's a lot of prayer, but this is our invitation to pray in this way for us and for ourselves, for the fullness, the fullness of God in our lives. But then he has to get to this beautiful doxology, this ending statement of praise. Let me make sure I get it right here. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Friends, people of God, this is not then our invitation to jump right back into a health and wealth, a name it and claim it, make it all about ourselves kind of prayer life. What hasn't Paul prayed for? He hasn't prayed for himself to be freed from prison. He hasn't prayed for the church in Ephesus to stop being persecuted. He hasn't prayed for wealth to be poured out upon him. 
He hasn't prayed for the thorn to be removed at his side that has caused him distress and has struggled with in his health for who knows how many years. He hasn't prayed for political power and for the church to get their man or their woman in the office so they can take things over again. He hasn't prayed for any of that. He has prayed that they would have Christ dwelling richly in their hearts, that they would know this unknowable love of God, previously unknowable, now known to us through Jesus Christ, its height, its depths, its breadth, its length, surpassing all, that they would be filled to the measure of the fullness of God alive in them. This is not our invitation and I'll immediately turn it on to ourselves, but now to reflect that God has already done what in the past was inconceivable. He has saved us not by religion, but by saving us through relationship with him by his resurrection. He has done for us what before was inconceivable and unknowable and unimaginable that he would bring all the peoples of creation back together in one in Jesus Christ. That is what blows his mind. That is what holds his mind captive. That is what has taken a hold of his heart. He has already experienced what to him was previously inconceivable, what to him was previously unknowable. He has already experienced such profound transformation that he's already living into him. As he says, now to him who has already done, who is already doing, he's already living into what is immeasurably more, what was previously inconceivable. Oh, when you need to know him, when you need something, uh, I don't want to say it, uh, just look deeper into this mystery revealed to us. Just look deeper into what has already has happened. Look deeper into what Christ has already done. Look deeper into the love of the Father made known to us. Look deeper into the availability of the Spirit already here for us. Look deeper into these things because it is there then he can say, God has already done what is so immeasurably more. He has already done what I didn't even know how to imagine in the past. So what could possibly be beyond his grasp? What could possibly be too hard for him? And he doesn't even bother worrying about the details because for him now to say, if God has worked all of this out, he has the peace and assurance to know that all things will work out, that all things will work out in this glorious plan already revealed. Let me do this. Let me wrap it up because we got a big day ahead. So Carlos, let's come on up and we're about to sing. And It really is. I I think I've said this before, but it really might be one of my all time, definitely in the top three favorite hymns. Come thou fount of every blessing because this hymn can help us drive home the fact that again, we'll go back to that fulfillment of what was prayed for of the people of God that the Lord bless them and keep them to look upon them and give them grace and give them peace. All of this has already been and is being fulfilled for us in the fount of every blessing, every spiritual blessing poured out for us in Jesus Christ. Let me pray and then we'll